Hi everyone, Josh and Ryan here. Welcome back to the Supercent Podcast, the personal development podcast hosted by the youngsters for once. Research shows if you put a hundred random people in a room, somewhere amongst them, there will be just two truly incredible, inspirational people who are living their lives to the fullest. In this podcast, we bring those exact people to you, week in and week out. Join us on our journey as we learn the secrets, routines and dreams of the Two Percenters. Hello and welcome back to the Two Percent Podcast. Josh and Ryan here and today we are joined by Stephen Chan, our good friend Stephen. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. Good, good, good. So uh, Stephen, what is your bio? Give us, give the listeners a bit of info. Obviously we know loads and loads about you but everyone else doesn't. So, Right. So I am a final year student, design school student at Loughborough University. I've just come off a placement during medical technology consulting. Yeah, I'm from Hong Kong, half Korean, half Chinese, multicultural background, and moved to the UK for university, like many do. I've also been part of an actors like Josh and Ryan. Not just part of an actors, the leader of an actors. El Presidente. <laughs> yeah, so we did meet through an actors, I think was the first time we met. And I can't quite remember it, but I think it was on the day of the election that I first met you. And it was like, you got vice president, right? Well done. There's Stephen. <laughs> He's your president. I think we didn't meet once go and, before. Go, go and have an idea. <laughs> well, and just so the listeners understand, right, that, what, that election that you speak about, you were competing against each other, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for the top two positions for an actor's president and vice president for our team, we decided to have an election uh, where members elected for uh, self-nominated candidates. One of them was Ryan for president, and the other person who made a very last-minute decision was me. <laughs> we ended up, we didn't know each other, despite that the Enactus team at the time was quite small, and we just ended up competing, and somehow with people shifting around, we both ended up on committee, yeah. being able to work together. But I think the interesting thing about that was that no one really knew you until that point, Stephen, from my point of view. So like like you say, it was a shock. Like it came it came out of the blue. Like I think everyone thought, oh, it's just gonna be Ryan, like whose else is gonna go for it? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this person called Stephen is running for the uh running to be president. And so is that is that part of your who you are? Like are you you don't sort of push your personality out there, but you still have that self belief to, to run for those sort of leadership positions? I tend to stay quite quiet most of the time. I like to absorb what's around me. But every now and then if there's an opportunity I like to push myself. Yeah. And so that was a moment where I wasn't doing much. I didn't have much planned. It seemed like something that would be good for my personal development and also do something interesting as part of my university life and so I just went for it and so I literally the night the morning of when we had to do our sort of election speech per se uh, I messaged Cam who was the president before me and I told him that I wanted to run as well so it was quite a last a very last minute decision yeah but turned out all right. It is testament to the decision and to to you that you know, Inactus is no mean feat, it's no small commitment, you know, the presidency or just being part of the society at Loughborough, but also just in any in any of the 
the societies around the world is a big, big thing. And so just to clarify or, or to recap, so Natus is a, a network of student organisations around the world that build social enterprises, businesses and projects that have impact on local communities to try and move the world towards the sustainable development goals. So for me, it was super surprising because I thought... As Josh said, I thought I was basically the only one going for the position and it was still a big thing, kind of preparing the speech and stuff, as you say. Um, and it was so, so interesting because there were a few times that I've come into something like that where I've had to work with someone very closely and I've not known them before at all. And so for me, that was a big growth opportunity and it was, it was a big development that happened, you know, taking that team across the whole year to, to nationals and building on all the projects that we had like, it was such a, an exciting experience and I just want you to pick up on that kind of cultural element that you say so as an international student coming to the UK because for me it was a big it had a big impact to have someone by my side who's got that different perspective on things and I think that's from a design point as well but from a cultural point as well just the perspective that you have on everything it was always not not different in a confrontational way, but always always different to me. And that, that sort of insight, I think, is what made it such a good team. Definitely. I think initially, sort of, no one realizes it when they sign up to like these, um, to lead a society to help out in some way at university. Yeah. You do sign like an invisible contract to work <laughs> with people that you've never met with before and you must work with them for like a year and you have to make things work out so it was quite interesting to get the position and then realizing that but then to actually make it work and seeing how fun it could be how challenging it was but also how much like you can just learn from someone you've literally like never met before yeah how much do you think you you developed during that year as a person Stephen because from my point of view and from the team's point of view you took a team that hadn't been in, in the in the top five in years. And we went to that nationals competition, a bit of sort of the underdogs. And we, we got into that top five position. I don't know if it was the first the first time ever, but it was definitely the first time in a long time. So that in itself was it was a, it was a great achievement. But but just from looking at you personally, I, I saw so much growth in terms of the way you communicated to the team and the way you stood up there as a as a as a proper leader towards the end. In terms of results, it was the we were following quite a high of the previous year where we all of a sudden made it into the finals. And so I did feel a little pressure in like, well, we got to do something sustain that, yeah. good as well. We got to at least sustain some sort of high quality of the team and our outputs. But I think it, it was my first time leading such a large group of students and leaving and just leading people in general like I think we all can admit that we were in no position to influence and be a mentor to others at the beginning of Enactus when we first popped onto committee for me I definitely had to take a step back and be very brutally honest with myself in what I had and I didn't have and what I could tell other people to do and what sort of was okay advice to give like morally acceptable to give and not give when I should give when I should have restraint and when I should sort of push others to push people to like find guidance from more um prepared people more people that were in a 
that will be in a better position to give advice. So it was a huge step up for me. And I think definitely having the committee that we had, like we were very open with each other. We were like, how could we improve? What troubles were we having? How could we take a step up to the next level? That honesty between us and with myself definitely took me to another step. I was also struggling a lot with anxiety and nervousness. So I've always been like nervous about public speaking and doing presentations. And so stepping up to that committee role, I thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if I had to like force myself to speak out every single Monday, prepare a presentation, get people interested, get people motivated. How could, you know, a student do that for other students? So that was a very interesting challenge that I was very nervous to undertake, but came out the other side, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's that's what is so brilliant about universities as a whole, but specifically the society side, is that within that sort of society melting pot, you've got a sort of mini hierarchy or, or a hierarchy of students who are only one year more experienced than you, only one year more sort of developed and academically aware and all the rest of it than you. But there is definitely, and especially within Anaptis, I think, because of how unique it is, a dynamic of, well, when you're at that level, you are a mentor to the people below you. You are um, an inspiration, a leader, all of these things. And that is not to be understated. But yet at the same time, you're at a very similar, if not the same level. And so it's such a hard field to play. Um, but I think that's, that, that is what made it so exciting because you had to find that balance and finding that was difficult but then that balance doesn't exist when in the real world your boss is 30 years older than you or who, who you're reporting to is you know 20 years older than you and from a completely different background and doesn't understand your perspective and it's yeah it was really really interesting I mean how was the experience for you Josh? I think what Stephen touched on about our team team culture was really important and I yeah. think a lot of a lot of organizations societies and, and even in the workplace now like what I'm working in in big corporates could learn from the culture that we created in that small group of committee. Um, like we would, we would literally go to each other's house. We did like a come dine with me where we'd, we'd go to each other's house. We'd cook each other a meal. And then we'd literally just sit down and chat. And like everyone had the opportunity to say what was on their mind, like how they were feeling. And it was just like a completely judgment-free zone, like and complete authenticity amongst the group to say how you were feeling and what was going on. And I've never, I've never had that before. And I've never had that since then on that level of like, I work with you in a sort of almost a professional setting. But then as soon as we get behind closed doors and we're together as a, as a group, we can be as open and, and as transparent as we like. And that was, that was really powerful, I thought. After that second year of university, I moved on to working in a consultancy. And it also had quite an open culture, but you could feel the filters that people had and what they were not willing to speak yeah. about or be open about. And that for me was quite honestly a shock to the system yeah. where you have an open culture, but there are some filters that you have to figure out what they are and apply them to yourselves. So, as Yeah, I mean, it's natural right like filters everyone applies filters in in the workplace and in, in organizations but that that was what was so unique about 
about that little culture we created is that we, we didn't have filters. And the fact that you found it a shock to the system that people weren't sharing stuff is kind of like testament and, and, and a bit remarkable and shows what we were doing there as a group, I think. Do you guys think that would change though? Like when we graduate or like 10 years down the line, when we what, the, like these bigger companies? What, that people will eradicate their filters and there'll be a completely complete transparency in big organizations? Well, yeah, or even just like, just a little more transparency in how, you know, management makes decisions or uh, how business decisions are made. Yeah, I think they will, actually, personally. It won't be it won't be a monumental shift, but it's definitely getting there. And uh, it's starting to happen now already. Like, people are starting to appreciate authenticity. And, and it's also because we need to. Like, there's, there's a greater awareness developing around mental health, especially. And more and more people are coming out and saying, this is what I deal with. And when they, when they can present that, they can then get given the right working environment, which helps them excel. And, and the prime example I have of that is I, I recently went on a new project with a new manager. And the very first meeting we had, uh, she sat me down and she said, so let's, like, let's just talk about ways of working. And like, she had no like, sort of reason to tell me anything about herself other than what we were going to do work-wise. And she said, so just to let you know, uh, I, have these, um, I have this anxiety problem and I have these xyz mental health problems um it's fine i'll be fine day to day but sometimes i need to like take some time out and and i have these sessions so i might be late in on this day and i was like i came out of that meeting like wow like that's the first meeting i've ever had and met this this lady and she was so open about it but then from there it sort of enabled us to have a, like a a work culture of, of understanding yeah i mean that, that's really powerful isn't it because i think there's so many different levels to what we what we're talking about. We're talking about on a cultural level, on a kind of personal authenticity level, and then further down on a kind of mental health level. And so, for you to be able to say that in your workplace, what Accenture are doing are kind of hitting all three of those, and that is creating a better working environment, and it's making the people involved in that particular group more productive. It, it's it's a win-win isn't it it's better for the business and it's better for the people um and i think what we kind of see looking up is that there are those kind of filters that are there in the cultures that are around like it's from what it sounds like Stephen, yours is one of many many companies that are trying to be more open and are trying to sort of be more progressive i suppose in terms of their workplace culture, but aren't quite hitting the mark because, you know, they bought a beanbag or, you know, that, that's far too kind of surface level. But you know what I'm trying to say? We did have a beanbag for a while, <laughs> but then it disappeared and no one knew where it went. But Oh, that's suspicious. <laughs> did you steal the beanbag? No, I did not. <laughs> but yeah, I think I did. I did try and be open about as much as I could when I was on my placement in terms of what exactly I did, sort of my processes, um, what I thought about the company around me. And it was interesting to get into small conversations here and there, but there was that frustration where it wasn't more widespread and it wasn't uh, addressed as it should be, where it should have been well, what I felt should have been company matches, wider company matches, or should have been a departmental 
not sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think I definitely agree. There's companies that are trying to push it there. But also, at the end of, end of the day, it is the employees that need to make it happen. Yeah. And that's how you create a culture, right? It's not just saying, right, our, our culture's changed now. Brilliant. <laughs> that's it, it's done. It's like you've got to have the people on the ground enacting that, you know, day to day to make it happen. Okay, so let's move on um, and pick a little bit deeper into the kind of design thinking side. So you're a design student. You've come over to university at Loughborough, one of the best design schools in the country, probably the world. You can speak a bit better to that. How does that, how's that experience been for you, especially as somebody who's been bringing that thinking to the social enterprise entrepreneurship space when it's not two fields that people might necessarily see that go together? So my design journey started back in secondary school, where, as most people doing international curriculum and British-based curriculums, we studied design and technology. And it was a subject that I was very interested in because it tapped into my more art-creative side, but it was also very grounded in evidence-based ergonomics, uh, material science and how you can actually turn it into turn an idea into a product that makes impact into people's lives. I did pretty well in high school and decided to pursue it for university. And in my first year, I joined uh, and acted as a general member. And I was quite shocked that there was a lot of projects that were trying to make things happen, mm. um, trying to create products, but they just didn't know how to. They didn't have knowledge. They didn't know where to look. Uh, they didn't know what to even ask about. And so the first project I was on, it was a bunch of students that all they knew they wanted to do was turn plastic waste into something, a product, something. They didn't know. They didn't have any idea, but they wanted to utilize plastic waste in something. So went to the project and came up with a long list of uh, products that people had in their household in our student accommodation or things that they would need but they don't have and the idea was to find a product that was very ubiquitous and could show a lot of people at the same time that plastic recycled plastic actually has a use that project ended up not going anywhere because as we soon found out Plastic recycling is actually ridiculously complicated. You have so many composites of different plastic types. Uh, you have to find a way to clean them, sort them, collect them as well. And as a student project, there wasn't much we could have done without uh, spending a lot of time and trying to get funding. But that initial first project and first experience of an act has really opened, opened my eyes to the need of product development knowledge within the society, but also within entrepreneurship in general. And so when I stepped up to a committee, we did a big push in terms of our marketing and recruitment for people from every single department of the university. Because I had seen a side of 
the value of product development, but I was pretty sure that in disciplines and in subjects that I had never interacted with, there would be some value in those subjects that could be brought into entrepreneurship and whatever projects that our members wanted to create. So massive, massive push for students from every single department of the university. And we did do that. We did? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and looking back now, it's only now I sort of realise how, how wise that was because I'm based in the innovation section within Accenture at the moment. And, and one thing they, they sort of teach is so much is that like in order to have true innovation and to come up with the best ideas, you need a diverse team. And they say, like, it's so important to have a range of people from different backgrounds. And it's not even just, like you say, it's not even just, like, different education backgrounds. It's, like, culturally different, like, personal experiences. They all add just a different element and a different angle to how you think about things. Definitely. I think, for me, the members and their projects really highlighted to me that there's many different disciplines and wider subject areas that we never really interact with as students. And for most people, it's only when we go out into the real working world that we truly start to interact with other subject areas, different professionals, different expertise. And we start to learn how to work together and with them. Uh, and that has provided a really great opportunity to learn that before we actually went out there and did our placements or went out for a graduate job. But on the other side, within our committee, I didn't know much about British culture. I didn't know about where everyone came from, uh, what they, what background they had, how diverse it could be. And so seeing the different talents, the different upbringings and how that influenced the work we did within our own small seven, eight people committee. Yeah. That was quite an interesting contrast, but uh, really great insights from that. Yeah. I definitely agree, um, although I think there can also be a level of naivety to it. It is, or it was, on placement for me also so beneficial to be able to talk to the finance team in some sort of financial language that they understand, talk to the designers in at least some kind of design messaging that they understand to kind of break down that friction that is or would would have been there had I not sort of taken the time to understand what it is they're doing so that when we're working on a design-based project together, I can switch a little language switch and go, right, I'm going to talk to you in a way that's slightly uncomfortable for me. I don't quite understand the full nuances of it all, but I'm going to talk to you in the way that I think you want to be spoken to because it's easier for you to do your job. And I'm going to do the same for you and the same for everyone else. And that was really beneficial because learning those sort of um, little differences of communication, I suppose, just made my job and everyone else's job really easier. So it was uncomfortable, but I guess it, it's a, it's an example of pushing yourself beyond that kind of comfort zone to make things happen a bit, a bit better. Definitely. I think jargons are quite an interesting area of sort of interacting, yeah. interacting with other disciplines and that sometimes when we name drop like jargons and people, people sometimes get intimidated by them. But also sometimes if you drop in a jargon that the opposite side is familiar with, mm. they start to suddenly feel very comfortable talking and trying to work together with you. I think there's like little hints of language really stood out for me. 
and by the end of my placement, I really found myself avoiding like any big terms yeah and just explaining things as simply as possible because we do learn all the like big names and terms in our education but at the end of the day everything is evolving all concepts are like yeah intertwined and merging and it gets harder to speak about them if we try and stick to our little academic terms and jargons I think for some people as well, it's a it's an insecurity thing. So people try to sound as though they know more than they do, and then when it gets to a point where they realise that they don't, or someone calls them out, it kind of goes the other way. So why why go there in the first place? Just sort of. But, well, some industries, especially, are like designed to be more complex than they need to, like the fin- finance and That's legal fair. industries yeah. and stuff. They purposely use language and stuff that turns people off, and they don't they don't really want everyone to know every little nuance you know yeah that's an interesting other side of it i suppose because then if um using less complex language or being familiar with the terms and things like that makes an expert look slightly less of an expert then that chargeable time value suddenly goes down and the profit of that bottom line is going to change so I, I i guess it does make sense um but then i suppose then maybe the argument is well that's their job you know that's kind of what they're there to do they're not that you're not there to to do their job for them you're paying them to do that type of financial kind of job especially if it's an audit or something like that you're not going to do it yourself just just does a quick contrast before we move on um i think the world is sort of moving in the other direction though now like all the big businesses that are succeeding at the moment and being disruptive are the ones that are making things simpler so i think there'll be at the moment in the world if you can if you can make something very complex and if you can take something very complex and make it very simple for the consumer that's how brands are winning at the moment definitely agree i mean that is basically why a lot of companies are looking to like concepts like design thinking where you start with who the market is who you really want to benefit in the end and work back from there and try and create a product from there and in the same way like uh, the language you use every day or the actions you take like sure it's best to move back from where you want to be what your end goal is and that way you will end up closer to that end goal which was quite interesting because when we were doing a lot of our projects for Enactus a lot of the times we had these great ideas but we no one really had proof uh, no one really went out and asked people like do you actually yeah. need what we are offering and I think certainly in our year, we made a big push with all the business model canvases, all the surveys, questionnaires we tried to get people to do and getting people to like, where we emphasize the power of a simple email, it takes five minutes, draft one and send it out. You get to have concrete proof that people actually need what you're offering. People actually have problems. Um, What you're doing is actually valuable. And it's quite surprising that people were committing a lot of their time without any substantial evidence. That is sort of part of the naivety of yeah. getting into this whole entrepreneurship thing is that you get so excited and you're built up on the adrenaline of trying to create something that you created, not someone else, but you created. And you get to make an impact on the world. But not many people first starting off realize that impact is a two-way thing 
is you giving something and someone receiving something as well. And if there's no one that wants to receive it, it's really not worth the effort. So that was quite an interesting concept that I saw at the end of our an actor's push journey. Journey. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, it's not. It. It's not finished. We can't call no. it the end of the journey. <laughs> We're still end. here and there, like giving advice where we can and yeah. helping mentor the next batch. Yeah, it's never the end. Okay, so now we're going to move on to everyone's favorite section. So the word association game. So what we're going to do is fire at you 10 words, mostly randomly chosen. And we just want you to fire off whatever your response is. We'll write it down and then pick out, pick out the ones we want to talk about. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. First word, simplicity. Generalization. Oh, I've got to write it down. <laughs> Should I choose to word? Yeah. Coffee. Too much. <laughs> That's not one word, but um, That's right. Technology. Mm, I'm thinking of a word, but it's like illusion. Illusion. Leadership. Testing and trialing. Belief. Confidence. Community. Family. Urban. Life. Family. Everything. Sunset. Quite. Probability. Reality. Lovely. Okay, I'm going to start with simplicity and generalization. Why did you say generalization? So English is my first language, but I've always been interested in why there's so many, um, why do we have so many words in the English language? Because surely every word was created for a reason. And why should we choose one word over the other? Uh, whether it, it could just be art where we want to get a certain emotional response or something. But that looking to sort of the English language and what the nuances of sort of similar words, similar meaning words, but different words, why we should choose between them, that really opened my eyes into how we tend to simplify things a lot in our everyday lives, the way we explain things, but also um, and the ideas that we communicate to other people. Because ultimately, every time you uh, communicate a concept to someone else, you're simplifying it in some way or form. You can never tell someone an idea you had 100% with all the details. Even if you maybe ex- try to explain a concept three or four times, you might not even get the full picture across. So that's always intrigued me and led me into uh, the more communication design, communication side of design where you move away from words but you have visuals you have animations you have more things that can communicate the whole idea quicker better more effectively and communication has been a big part of my placement where you have these very complex medical concepts and you're trying to explain it to these uh, high level executives that 
have been in the game for a long time, but aren't up to date with all the trends and all the uh, upcoming sort of therapies that are available and are in development. And so you have to like quickly put together a five minute presentation on what it is, why it's so effective, why it could be why it could be beneficial for a company, and just seeing the way that you can have an image which might appear very simple, but has been given a lot of thought about. Uh, the message wants to bring across the message it wants to put across the table, and who is on the receiving end of it. That was a really eye-opening experience for me. Wow! So that's so interesting because for me, increasing the sort of language that you're using in an in an attempt to try and make it simpler actually would make a message clearer. But what I'm hearing is that it's almost going the other way. In that, in so doing, what you're really doing is making whatever it is more general because you can't capture the whole kind of essence of an idea that's kind of what you're saying right yes and, and so there's definitely benefits in generalizing things and making things simpler yeah because they're definitely a lot easier to digest yeah. but if you see if you've seen a series of youtube videos where they're like scientists or experts that explain difficult concepts to different age groups you'd find that the explanations to the children they're missing out on quite a lot of information or detail that's being told to the adults or the PhD students in that series. But at the same time, like you are catering to whoever you're talking to, you're taking into account like the most effective way of bringing across an idea. Yeah. Okay. So next, I'm gonna pick up on community, family, and family everything. So that's quite a nice little series of words. <laughs> Unintentionally. Why is community and family so important? I was asked last night at dinner, where is home? And that really made me think. Because I grew up, my first language was English, but I grew up in Hong Kong. And it was very hard for me to get engaged with the local culture to understand literally understand the people around me, the school mates that I had. And for a long time, it was very hard for me to be a part of something or at least feel like I was a part of something. And so home, Hong Kong never felt like home as most people refer to a place as their home. For me, home was always about the people that I felt really connected to. I remember there was coincidentally a group of us back in uh, middle school, year seven to nine, where there was a bunch of friends that happened to all come from mixed culture backgrounds. There was me, half Korean, half Chinese. There was a half Indian, half Singaporean, half Indian, half British, half Chinese, half Australian, half Vietnamese, half American. There was American, there was um, Singaporean, just this group of kids that just belong to nowhere, but found this common ground and like stuck together. That was like the first time I really felt part of something. And that for me is when I really, for the first time, like kind of opened up to people outside of like my... Uh, family like actual family so that's why 
I tend to say my friends, the people I feel most connected to, the people I think about, are the ones that make me feel like at home. Or, and that's why they're sort of everything for me. And I, th- I it, think that it, echoes a lot what uh, I guess we had a couple of episodes like called Quentin. Um, mm. he, he basically moved, he's moved countries every two to three years since birth. So he's lived in like, he's been to all continents, lived in like five of them, um, never settles. And he said the exact same, like he, he doesn't know where his home is and he doesn't really feel like he has a home. But when people ask him that question and when he thinks about home, he said it's all about the people for him. And that's how he doesn't, you know, he doesn't sort of get too hung up on it because it's always just about the people and the next people he'll meet and, and the relationships that he's built. Um, so it's kind of nice to hear you sort of saying the same message there. Definitely. And to be honest, I haven't, I haven't really fully come to terms with it. And I don't think a lot of people from mixed backgrounds do come to terms with it fully until they properly settle down and have a family, from what I've heard. Have you asked your parents about it? In, as in? As in, have you sort of said that, have you sort of expressed um, this sort of concern or feeling of like being lost to, to your mum or something? No, family. Mum was always mum, dad was always dad. Uh, but you sort of go out there into society and everyone's telling you, you got to be part of something. You got to be part of a group. You got to be part of a uh, tribe, a a common be a part of a common interest and that pressure is there and I definitely felt it ever since I was a kid in primary like you know you go into the courtyard everyone's playing around and it's just you on the corner because you can't even um, speak the same language and even if you did speak the same language you don't understand the same cultural references can't be part of the general conversations and that I never really brought it to my parents or family in part because I felt like that's just a situation I was in there's not much I can do about it but also my family my mom grew up solely in Korea and my my dad grew up solely in Hong Kong so I didn't think that, as all naive kids do, didn't think they would understand it that well or could provide any meaningful advice. Mm. But over time, like, opened up more, definitely. And it was interesting because I have an older sister, but then the group of friends, she she went to the same school, but uh, she picked up Cantonese way faster than I did. And she ended up making a lot more uh, Cantonese-speaking friends at school. So she was doing more than all right. But for me, I felt like it's a constant outsider. Mm. And even if there was other people that felt the same, we were a collection of outsiders, not a group of people that were part of society or that immediate uh, society that we had at school. 
It's, it's really interesting, the point you mentioned about we're constantly being told to be part of something. Because I've never really thought of that before. But when you, when you said it, like, everywhere in life we're being assigned into some sort of group or team, whether it's sports, classes, work groups, you know, like, everywhere. And and I've always seen that as sort of a, a positive thing because we, we're sort of taught that that's what we need to be happy, that community and that, that feeling. But I guess if you're not involved in that and you're struggling then it becomes a source of pressure and, and it's sort of teaching us that it's not okay to be alone sometimes. Definitely. Which is, yeah, it's a bit of a different perspective. It's kind of sad. I never really thought of that before. Don't get me wrong though, being with people that I absolutely love, hanging out yeah. with friends, being with other people. But it's just that when you have that pressure to be a part of something, get stressed out, you freak out. And you, for a lot of people, they feel like they don't belong in this world. Like they go to the extremes of where, because they haven't fit in yet, they will never fit in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a fascinating perspective. And I think for me, I kind of come from a middle ground of kind of, Josh and ESL, Stephen, because the school I was at from year seven through sixth form, so pretty much my whole kind of education and kind of teen years and all the rest of it was um, a not an international school, but a, a language specialist kind of multi very multicultural, very diverse school. You did an international curriculum, and I did an international curriculum at sixth form in the international baccalaureate so I feel and I, you know we had opportunities to go on lots of exchanges from very very young we had to learn two languages um can you speak multiple languages right uh, yes can I speak them well no <laughs> <laughs> what can I, you speak I can speak English yeah I can speak Sorry. American uh, <laughs> <laughs> no so I learned French and German at GCSE I did Spanish for a year, so that doesn't really count. I did Latin for a year, and again, that doesn't really count. And so I would say now confidently that I can speak fluent English and I can speak French to a solid level that has sadly deteriorated over <laughs> the last year. Um, but that said, when it when you start learning it again, it comes back so quickly. Um, so I'd say I can speak I can speak French very well. Um, the point isn't really kind of how many can you speak. So, you know, it's being exposed to cultures different from your own from such a young age. Then, so I'm now in a position where I can completely empathize with both of you and what you say from being that kind of outsider perspective, because I have been on both sides of that in that, in, in that school environment, because when there's a group of French kids just speaking French, with your English mates who can also speak French better than you, <laughs> laughing at you in French. Like it's, like, it's a sort of weird sort of different dynamic. And then there's, there's the other side of it of being the one who is part of the group in terms yeah. of I'm a, an English male in a class that is in a school two minutes from where <laughs> I live kind of. That's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so it's an interesting perspective that I can empathise with both of you. And so, yeah, I think it does just em emphasise that community is very, very important 
in in whatever you're doing. So yeah, I think that's a good end to the to the word association game. I think we picked out a lot of good themes there. Um, so now going to move on to the final section of the show. So Stephen, we're going to fire at you some questions from the internet, from public, and then we're going to ask you the question from FA, who was our last guest. And then you've got the chance to ask our next quest on uh, can't speak <laughs> our next guest a question, um, and so you can ask whatever is on is on your mind. So be having to think uh, think about that. So the first question I've got is from a Reddit forum, and it is from um, Wasting Time Three. That is the username. If you want to go and look up the responses, and the question is, what quote changed your mindset the most about life? What quote? Like quotation. So, you know, Gandhi or, you know, whoever. Is there a quotation that sticks in your mind from anywhere? I've never really been inspired by, you know, the motivational yeah. quotes that you see online or like yeah. quotes of like famous people. It, it was always in my like um, school projects where like, please find two quotes from a famous person. Yeah. And it always seems so cheesy for me. I think after some time, like in secondary school, I started realizing quotes mean jack shit if you don't know the context that they were set in and that they come from. And so... We're going to quote that, Stephen, and put it on our Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've never been motivated by a quote, but I suppose the concepts of quotes themselves really opened my eyes to everything's very uh, context-based, very situational-based, yeah. and you really have to be aware of what the larger picture is. And I suppose it comes back to simplicity as well, because all a quote is is a an excerpt of a larger speech or text or whatever to try and distill a message to like five or ten words or whatever. But like you say, it's important to pay attention to the message around it. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting. I love a quote, personally. What's your favourite thing, Gwen? <laughs> favourite? There's too many to choose yeah. from. <laughs> I've actually got a load written. I'm in my bedroom right yeah, you've now. You've got post-its on your wall, don't you? Yeah, so let me yeah. just... Okay, this is quite a good one. Yeah. <laughs> You'll have to tell me. Is it... Do you have to tell me if it's cheesy, Stephen, or if it has value? Okay. It says, Our fears are always more numerous than our dangers. Our fears are always more numerous than our dangers yeah mm, i suppose quantifying fears is a concept i'm struggling to okay so I'll, I'll, say, I'll tell you why i've got it on my wall anyway it's because mm-hmm. like it's basically saying that especially as an overthinker for me like what you fear mate will happen and all these things that you're worried about like 80 90 percent of the time they never actually turn into anything tangible into a tangible thing to be stressed about so for me it's just like a nice reminder that you don't that like 90 percent of the time things are okay and it's just a like a mental thing you've created in your head if that makes sense no it does definitely make sense with, with the context <laughs> with with the context that here's a quote for this person named josh who's in a situation and has a mindset of always overthinking yeah, yeah. That now makes sense. And that reminds me that I've always, like, teased... Uh, I used to tease people for listening to, like, Gary Vaynerchuk because he always had, the, like, the same message of just go out and do stuff. 
And then a month or two ago, I saw a podcast where Gary Vaynerchuk was a guest and uh, he was answering questions and he explained why he was always trying to push across that message over and over again. And it was because people always stagnate. They always um, procrastinate on the things that they want to do but and have sometimes planned it out, but they haven't just done it. And in that scenario, seeing, hearing the message and understanding the market that it was going to, then yeah. it all started to make sense for me and it didn't seem like this cheesy motivational speaker yeah yeah 100 percent. So, so that's the thing with quotes as well is like there's so many out there and like the fact the, the, the main thing about quotes is that they they resonate differently with so many different people and so like when sh- when someone shares a quote on their facebook like half the time i'm like like so what like, i don't i don't get it like i don't care but they've sort of felt so strongly about that that they thought to share it and like probably half the quote if i tried to share quotes people wouldn't resonate the same way and Mm -hmm. it's it's, it's until you get that context and what they're going through that it only becomes like properly meaningful definitely okay so final public question from me Stephen. um based on your background i pulled one out here from a a reddit forum and i pulled this out based on your background of of like ryan mentioned earlier the, the way you think about things and the way you um sort of come up with ideas i think is is quite interesting especially for someone who probably has a more linear mindset like me and Ryan in that business, that business space rather than the, the design space. Um, so this question is, how do I become more creative? And I'm going to add on to that. What is creativity to you? Give me a moment. Yeah, no. I think creativity has always, has more often than not been translated as more um as an output coming from our more emotional sides as people. But I think creativity in the context of what we do in our daily lives, in the actions and decisions we make, it can come in so many different forms across the spectrum of a purely emotional uh, outcry to a very logical, uh, action that we take so for example when when I was on my placement I wanted to we had to illustrate the concept of microneedles for those that don't know microneedles are sort of like a plaster patch with very small tiny needles on it and on those needles are coated um medicines or therapies or drugs they got uh, applied onto your skin with pressure and we have to illustrate that sort of concept of there's many small needles on this patch which is very hard to draw which was which is usually what I do if I want to illustrate a concept I draw it out uh, quickly sketch it out but it's very hard to draw like a very thin patch with microscopic needles. So what I did was, after a few trial and errors with different methods, I ended up using a 3D modeling software, 3D modeled a patch and then rendered it. I used Photoshop to use colors to highlight certain parts, uh, blew up the image on different slides to 
show the details and the finer um, nuances. And in that sense, creativity was more trialing error, having a specification of what you want at the end of the day and seeing what sort of softwares you need, whether however unconventional it may be. But then on the other side of the spectrum, there's also uh, when I'm doing a drawing, what kind of line do I choose to use? What kind of uh, pen, pencil, paintbrush, whatever. And that's more sort of what I'm feeling, uh, what I feel could be more uh, relatable to the audience. And so in that sense, you have a broad spectrum of how you can do things differently, but differently in the sense, in many different kinds of senses. It, it's hard to answer this question because at the end of the day, what we always do in our actions is try and solve a problem, try and rectify a problem, find a solution. And creativity in most cases is finding not necessarily a novel, not necessarily a unique way, but a surprisingly appropriate solution for whatever problem we're trying to do. And a lot of that, from what I've witnessed, has been being aware of the tools that are around us, being aware that everything can be modified, not just used and disposed of, but also but also that in the infinite possibilities of how we can reason and action, we do need to let our mind find its way, give it time. I remember on my placement, sometimes there was concept that was so hard to illustrate. And I would literally spend two, three hours browsing the web, trying to find inspiration, trying to milk some idea, some output from my brain. And <laughs> It just would not happen. But then if you take a step back, you work on something else, you let your subconscious play around with different ideas, play around with what sort of resources that it's aware of. Then at some point, uh, like three, four days later, when I got back to it, suddenly there's like three or four ideas, very plausible. Uh, outcomes that I could try and tackle and try and play around with. I really like that idea of your subconscious mind playing around with ideas. It, it almost it almost makes procrastination seem productive. Sometimes it is. Um, but I feel like you know how in I mean that's the thing with why 
uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning are such big subjects right now because they tackle problems in the same way that our intuition, that our subconscious tackles ideas and problems and that in the infinite ways, uh, infinite possibilities, we have to somehow filter out what's possible, what's not, what's appropriate and what's not. And uh, for our subconscious, like sometimes when we put things in our conscious and we're doing it right now, we're clouded by all of the um, expectations or the pressure, we're clouded by our emotions. But then when you let it rest in the back of your mind, uh, you sort of, in a way, ground yourself, take some time to ground yourself, uh, clear out all of the uh, filters that you've been putting on for like the past couple hours off Pinterest scrolling. And at some point, like your mind clears out and you have a better idea of connecting the lines. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, thank you. I think there's a few tidbits in there for um, how to expand your creative mind. I like the point about bringing in um, extra resources, especially. Okay, Ryan, do you want to finish us off with the the question from Afe? Yes. Okay, so this is a question from Afe Ezekiel, who is a youth mentor. Um, who came on to last episode and her question for you is what advice would you give others to live the greatest life and leave a positive legacy? I suppose it would be interesting to touch on the subject of what a positive legacy is because in many ways education seems to be the thing that society thinks will best uh, foster talent, foster people's um, abilities but in many cases it's not the right place and it's not the right environment, it's not the right criteria. I mean even for myself like um, going for education, coming to university I thought finally it's a place where I don't have to simply follow a checklist, a criteria, a mark scheme and take off, take it off to get to prove that I'm better via this checklist. But I was wrong. And I think for a lot of people, they get frustrated about that too. But yeah, it's hard to say what a positive legacy is because we always think that what has benefited us would benefit others when everyone is so different. But what could be a good thing to, a good message to leave with others is the mindset that you could have. What was that? Sorry, the mindset? A mindset that you could have. So that you could have a positive legacy. 
Oh, okay. No, so simply having a mindset or passing on the idea of a mindset instead of just um, a product or an experience. And that if you sort of continuously push people to think out of the box, be very open, then that leads them on to whenever they're invited to an opportunity they have this very open mindset on what could be done uh, what could they tackle what the risks could be and what they should what they can do yeah i get i get what you're saying you're saying sort of like rather than leaving them with an exact sort of route and this is how to achieve success or whatever it's more like teaching them how to approach like just yeah exactly giving them a mindset so it's like a, a more broad stroke this is how to approach problems tasks etc yeah. rather than me saying this is my exact formula to happy life or whatever yeah definitely what was yeah. the first part of the question what advice would you give to others to live the greatest life and leave a positive legacy i mean i'm only 20 how to live the greatest life is definitely not something I've even remotely found the answer to but I've definitely enjoyed just trying something new every day just going out there and experiencing what there is to do in the world what even doing the same things like how could you do it differently challenge yourself uh get out of your comfort zone I mean it's it's the quintessential advice but it's worked for me so far and I seem to be enjoying myself. Yeah, great. Okay, well, I hope, FA, I hope, hope you're listening and I hope you enjoyed that answer. Uh, so, Stephen, now you've been hopefully pondering on a question that you can ask our next guest. So we don't know who they're going to be yet, um, but we always get our guests to leave the next guest a question. So if you've got anything on your mind at the moment, pressure i always find it funny that the guests say it's pressure when they have to ask a question when we've been putting them on the spot for answers for like an hour for a whole hour exactly yeah <laughs> and they don't know who it's gonna be either so it's not like they have to factor that into to it either no i think there's there's a slight like impression of you're affecting someone else's interview <laughs> <laughs> Like, only the last, only the last question. Yeah. So. yeah. Mm. Could be anything you want on any topic you like. I think this could be an interesting question, although it might be more interesting because of my background. But I'd like to ask, how would you decide on a place to settle down? In nice. Nice. Wait, was there an extension or is that? Is... That was it. Yeah. I hesitate cool. on the last word, but I think that made more grammatical sense. No, that's, we haven't had a question like that really before. Just something they're kind of random, but. Different. Yeah. yeah, different. Different from what we've had. I'm just thinking because it has so many implications. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Hope you've enjoyed your time.
Thanks for having me. Absolutely uh, enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, that's it for another episode of the 2% Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, we'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch. Also, we're developing too, so if you liked the episode, give us some love on social to support the series, and if you didn't, let us know how to improve. Stay motivated, follow your dreams, and as always, do it with a smile.